the, what he's doing here is highlighting that we define violence in terms of the physical approach or methods that poor people typically use. Yeah. Um, we say that is not okay. Yeah. But we don't look at the other bits, the hostile takeovers, the finance, the inequalities, <clears throat> the lawsuits and say, well, that's actually quite violating as well, but that's okay, that's, that's socially acceptable. Yeah. In this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Kirsten McIdas about youth violence. We discuss the idea that violence done by young people needs to be understood in the context of the symbolic and cultural narratives of violence imposed on young people. It's not, it's not justification or you're not condoning it by any sense, but isn't it understandable that, say, a young man who is, um, doesn't fit in terms of these kind of violent educational systems, perhaps your home life is in a space where there isn't a sense of um, empathetic support. What messages of power do you, do you have at your disposal? Like, what do they have in their hands? They have access to their body, and as we were saying before, and unfortunately in some circumstances they have access to, to weaponry, right? This is a podcast for critical and imaginative conversations about this complex social issue. My name is Ben Lohmeyer, and welcome to Exploring Violence and Society. Okay, my special guest today is Dr. Kirsten McIdas. I'll tell you a little bit more about Kirsten in a moment, but first, hi Kirsten. Hi, good morning. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Pleasure. Um, what I want to do first is say that we've changed the format for the show today. Rather than being a straight up interview, as we've done in the past, uh, this is more of a mutual exchange of ideas, which sounds very <laughs> democratic, um, but hopefully it's just a conversation, really. Um, so Kirsten and I work together here at Table, running the Bachelor of Applied Social Science in Youth Work. And here's a little bit more about Kirsten. So she's an experienced researcher in the areas of young people, sociology, spirituality and culture. She's particularly interested in the relationship between religious and cultural experiences and how we can understand spirituality in a contemporary context. In addition to understanding the impact of discourse in the different spaces that young people occupy in society. Uh, so recent projects have also included a focus on theorising the domestic and family violence workforce. <laughs> so lots of really interesting things. I love reading bios of people because it's like all these really interesting ideas packed together and I feel like I should stop and read it all again or something like that. But don't <laughs> worry, we'll put that up on the, uh, on the show notes so we can read that again later. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously also an area of interest and passion for me. Um, So my PhD research was about young people's experiences of violence and violation from governing systems. Uh, I spoke to young people in the child protection system and the juvenile justice system here in South Australia. I also spoke with young people who have been involved in non-violent protests. Now this seems like a kind of a strange collection of young people, Um, but the reason for drawing together these different groups is that I want to look at violence uh, not just from the perspective, say, you know, those broad categories of perpetrator or victims, and here I'm doing air quotes for those <laughs> who are listening along at home, uh, but also young people who maybe enact violence but also resist violence. So it's mm-hmm. draw together these different groups to try and grow a greater perspective on, on the young people's experience. 
Um, so I'm obviously interested in violence from a sociological perspective. I think we've made that clear on the podcast so far. Uh, but what that means for working with young people is challenging the notion that there's something about the experience of youth or young people themselves that make them violent. Yeah. So I'm not saying that young people aren't ever violent. Uh, but I think there's evidence to show that there's something wrong with saying young people and youth is inherently violent. Um, so maybe another way of framing that is I'm interested in how young people become violent. Mm. Um, so I investigate how young people were born into systems and structures of violence and how these can, experiences can create a narrative that is enacted in their lives. And I sort of summarise that, that narrative by talking about how violence to young people shapes violence by young people. Uh, so we're going to sweep back around to that narrative a little bit. Uh, hopefully that becomes a bit of a theme for the conversation. Mm -hmm. And we discussed where we would start this conversation. Uh, at the moment, there's lots of uh, examples in the media and, and lots of different spaces where young people and violence are thrown together. Mm. And we could have easily started with some of those flashy um, experiences of violence. The sexy stories of violence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a reoccurring theme in this podcast is uh, how to frame up a really dark conversation that we end up enjoying talking about. Yeah. So that's weird. Uh, but so obviously there's been some recent mass shootings in the US where the perpetrators are kind of under 25. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a renewed focus on schoolyard uh, bullying and violence in South Australia and particularly last year we had a couple of unusual incidents. Um, there's obviously some global protests happening at the moment. Uh, everything from there's protests in Hong Kong where the students are taking a, quite a, a big lead there. Um, and there's some ongoing protests that have been around for a little while, like gun control movement in the US, as well as the, the school strike for climate. So there's lots of stuff happening. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think when we were brainstorming this list, it was interesting, though, that we wanted to kind of move beyond those stereotypical notions of um, young people and violence, which is partly what your work was trying to do, yeah. I think. Um, and we were even reflecting this morning the fact that, like, Tabor operates in an orphanage, and mm -hmm. in an old orphanage, and just in terms of, um, I suppose, our understanding of young people's existence and stories in that space um, is of a particularly violent kind of... We have a violent association and iteration with that, um, which is interesting when we kind of operate a youth work program in that space, yeah. you know, and those contradictory notions. But I think what I think the cool thing about your research in particular, but the fact that we want to move away from these, like, again, these stereotypical stories of these are the violent young people in our society and these are the, um, the people who experience violence is that we want to tease out perhaps more hidden notions of embedded violence. Um, where people completely across the spectrum um, have had had an experience of violence in their life, not necessarily physical, but other forms which we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Thank you. That, and that's a really good sort of segue into um, where we want to, to take the narrative of this conversation. Um, I'm going to read out uh, Slavoj Žižek's uh, quote about violence, which I had at the start of... Uh, this podcast, but it's really good because it reiterates the thing that you just said. Yeah. Uh, it's this idea that we might want to think about the violence that's behind the stuff that we initially see. So he says, uh, but we should learn to step back, to disentangle ourselves from the fascinating lure of this directly visible subjective violence, a violence performed by a clearly identifiable agent. A step back enables us 
to identify our violence that sustains our very efforts to fight violence and promote tolerance. Yeah. So there's a couple, there's a couple of things in here which I think are worth highlighting. Yeah. Uh, Zizek talks about subjective violence in, as that flashy, that interpersonal, if you like, physical violence. And he contrasts that to objective violence. So we're going to talk today, I think, a little bit about some different ways of framing up that idea of objective violence. So there's a few different pieces within that. But I really like the way that he talks about the connection between those two things. Yeah. So we, we see the subjective violence. That's easy to see. It's like the, the um, tip of the iceberg classic metaphor yeah. and underneath you have all this objective violence and it kind of erupts out of there into the space that we see it but mm. we don't interrogate that under the water stuff very often so yeah, yeah absolutely that's what we want to do absolutely so um we were again in our kind of um, brainstorming around this um topic um one <laughs> Uh, institutional form of violence that kind of came up was um, stories of symbolic and structural violence mm. in young people's interaction with Centrelink. Now, what is Centrelink? You may, I hear you ask for those none of the young people age <laughs> or not from Australia. Do you want to give us a bit of background? Sure. Yeah. So Centrelink uh, here, and I think it's worth the context for Australia as well. Um, is obviously a, a government institution that manages and distributes welfare uh, to people. And obviously there's uh, there's a few different levels for that. So we're, we're interested in, in the way young people access it. And so there's a, an allowance that they can access, uh, typically if they are involved in some sort of education uh, or employment sort of pathway, they're able to access that. But uh, the context for Australian welfare is quite interesting. So obviously we have a, a welfare system that's better uh, and offers more support perhaps than say a US model, um, which yeah, obviously has a much more stringent and market-based kind of way of operating that. But it's also Australian uh, welfare is more marketized than say um, the sort of Scandinavian context. Yeah. Uh, so in Australia, it's very uh, means-driven and targeted, and it requires people to demonstrate their need um, we were saying before, sort of at the outset and then regularly throughout. So you have this, uh, this sense of almost perpetual doubt yeah. on the part of the government that you require any sort of support and you have to keep proving that. Yeah, yeah we were saying so um, individuals who interact with Centrelink are constantly in the um, position in the framework that they have to be um, provide excuse me, evidence and defence of their own legitimacy in the space. So keep proving, keep proving that you belong um, in this space, mm. even though you don't want to be on Centrelink, but there's this sense of um, <clears throat> um, we're going to doubt you until you, we prove you up, or you're proven otherwise. So it's a very oppositional kind of force from the outset, isn't it? You know, we're, we're almost already combative with yeah. this, this system. Um, the other thing I was just thinking of before uh, is a recent uh, Australian po uh, policy where there was a move to combine welfare needs with um, with the tax system and there was a creation of what's called a robo-debt system where they were looking to see where people were were overpaid uh, and there's lots of issues with this system is it from an IT, IT perspective but also from maybe just an ethical perspective as well. But it adds another layer of of defensiveness, yeah. I think, to, to people's experience of this system, which is almost like constantly tracking them and out to get them, catch them out for doing something wrong. 
Skynet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Already arrived at Skynet. It didn't very, take very long. But if you think about, I mean, you know, your everyday interaction with this space is either you're waiting on phone on the phone for a long period of time when you want to contact them, or it's all um, technology driven where you have to have the resources and the knowledge to um, navigate a website which is built on you really non-intuitively um, understanding <laughs> what it means to prove your um, your worth on your non-worth in a space. Um, so when we were talking about this, um, I was reminded of a, a, of a little um, reflection or vignette that one of our colleagues, Phil Daughtry, wrote in his um, book, Portraits of Our Shy Hopes, which is this kind of collection of stories. Um, and um, it's actually called Centrelink um, <clears throat> with a hyphen. So he's kind of, oh, you know, okay. I know, yeah. messing with the etymology of the word. But... Um, <laughs> I thought I'd just, I'd just read it to kind of see how it adds to our conversation right. and how also, um, interestingly, youth work can actually act in this space to maybe dismantle some of these notions. Mm. Okay, Centrelink. A youth worker friend and colleague of mine uses mindfulness practices as part of her engagement with clients who primarily come from very challenged and stressful backgrounds. In one of her practices, she invites the client to lay still on the floor and listen for up to 10 sounds. Things like traffic, a bird song, ticking of a clock, a power tool in the distance, the sound of breathing, and so on. My friend will usually accompany the client in this practice, an expression of her democratic rather than hierarchical approach to helping. Thus, the vulnerability and the therapy is shared, and the teacher becomes a fellow traveller in the learning. My friend is quite courageous in her facilitation of this gentle, centering practice. One day, she met with a client in the foyer of the welfare office, Centrelink. She noticed the young woman was highly agitated and anxious and suggested to her that they practice their mindfulness ritual right there and then. Can you picture the two of them laying down in the discreet space in this public and most unlikely of meditative settings? Now, the meanings of this story are plentiful. Firstly, we see a bureaucratic space, often renowned for its capacity to strip away dignity, subverted into a classroom for the soul. Secondly, we are presented with a picture of the true professional, one whose vocation is characterised by care for the client rather than compliance to the corporate image. Thirdly, we become aware of the presence in this world within which our poets, our mystics and dreamers have always alluded to, namely that a great and loving stillness surrounds us, hovering over all of our restlessness and fear of life. A mindfulness practice such as illustrated by my brave and skillful colleague above opens a way for the stillness to penetrate and draws us back to a consciousness of grace. Centrelink indeed. Wow. <laughs> <coughs> what do you think of hearing that? Well, yeah, lots of things. Um, one of the things that I'm reminded of as I'm listening to that is the, the structure of the institution, uh, which is just not accountable for the experience of the people who are in there. Mm, um, good. So I um, think of Hannah Arendt's work, uh, and she talks about the notion of bureaucracy is representing the rule of nobody is her quote which is quite interesting uh, it's this idea that as you create more bureaucracies um, you have less people accountable for, for what they're doing and so effectively nobody is in charge yeah. so as soon as you try to engage with this system you find that the system 
diverts you in, in so many different directions uh, that you can't find somebody to talk to, to, to speak, help you, to yeah. help you, yeah. yeah, and then ultimately no one's accountable. Uh, and so that experience is violating. Yes, yeah. you, you're there in a moment of need, trying to get some help and support, but there's there's nobody who's there who's really able to help you. you know, and that's not an attack on the individuals no. in that system. You know, there can be some genuine people standing behind a desk trying to do their best, but they too are subject to this system. Um, and so yeah, you're sort of left with this this rule of nobody with this bureaucracy that doesn't work for anybody. So, so true. Um, you know, I think, you know, our understanding of symbolic violence, I think it's, it's really interesting because it, it highlights when, um, when uh, instruments of power are used to make people in less opportune spaces um, accept the status quo, right? So it's embeddedness of subordination, of domination, of exploitation, and it's about shame. And so someone doesn't necessarily, they're not aware that they're being violently acted towards because it's so deeply embedded in terms of their own understanding Mm -hmm. that we don't know how to behave any differently, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, you think about young people and and Centrelink, for example, and you have these rules and these norms in terms of, okay, these people, or these kind of rules of nobody, this computer tells me that this is, this is what they've decided about my case or my life and I have to act accordingly. Mm. And, and this is what this government says about who I am and the, the agency that I have, the power, the choices that I have in my life. Um, and it, I suppose it highlights the fact that who, <laughs> like when you're saying violence is acted towards people and then they become violent, you know, it's understandable that there's this frustration with a, with a government or institution when you're feeling unheard but you also accept that fact because it's so deeply embedded in these in these structures, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you kind of young people are, are born into this system. Right? They don't have an option to to opt into it. I mean, I suppose theoretically you can opt out of this system, yeah. right? But but what are you just opting out of? Just get a job. Just get a job. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I love the line of the moment for our uh, current government is that work is the best form of welfare. Well, that ignores the fact that work and welfare aren't the same thing, right? That welfare is there to support people who are vulnerable, who are perhaps not able to work. Mm-hmm. So if you're opting out of this, mm-hmm. yeah, what option, what choice do you, do you really have? So you're born into this system where you're given a label, you're given uh, a status, yeah. you, have, you have a place in the system which is immediately disempowered or yeah. the system is set up so that you are disempowered and you constantly have to prove your worth and prove your power yeah. and it assumes that you have the capacity to navigate that system right That's so there's right. it's that it's always that Bordeauxian idea of capital you know what emotional cultural capital do you need to navigate this system well the irony is that the people who need the system most are least likely to have that, that capital yeah, absolutely true so yeah. it's a violating experience of engaging with a system that is set up against you. Yeah, and I think what it also does is it, is it, it continues this myth that those who are in those positions of power, who have those privilege of cultural capital, of social capital, so they know all the right people, um, that those, those systems of support are hidden, they're invisible. So we assume yeah. that everyone has this capacity to make to change their world and to make their lives better, um, but it really... It, you know, it continues, it, it's a myth, it's a myth. Like you and I are born into a position of privilege in middle class, we have support networks, we have education and, and all of those systems are hidden 
um, or they're made invisible in comparison to you know the person who doesn't have those incredible support systems, um, and they're expected to make their lives better. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like that's the thing that frustrates me <laughs> so much. It's this myth of individualism that anyone can do on their own, but really, we without those without those systems of privilege, and they are essentially privilege because you happen to be born into those areas. Yeah. Um, the world's really really tough. Yeah. So, so what then is the implicit message there? You know, if you walk into the, the Centrelink office and you're not conscious of uh, the, the levels of privilege that are required to access that because you, you're not born into that yeah. position, uh, the message is essentially that you're not good enough. Yeah. Right? So, but why are you not good enough? Like you can't, can't understand why you're not good enough because all these systems are hidden from you and so yeah. this, this message is simply you're not good enough yep. so you're already vulnerable you're already probably at some level aware of your incapacity because mm-hmm. you've had to go to this place mm-hmm. which has already had this this cultural label of being only for people who don't fit yes know? so we're already a bad space so you're vulnerable you go in there and then the system says no yeah. and you, you don't deserve support either so where does that leave you Angry? Yeah. <laughs> Legitimately, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think so. And frustrated and um, I suppose it's understandable that there's lashing out towards that mm-hmm. um, when when everything is working to make you feel as dislocated as possible. Yeah. 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 So then we can see this, this narrative forming that... Um, we have this type of behavioural response, the anger, the frustration. Yeah. If you just look at that, you say, well, that's not acceptable. Yeah. So you're not, it's not okay that the people in the Centrelink office or wherever they are, that they lash out with violence. Yeah. And usually that's a kind of physical violence, mm-hmm. perhaps a verbal aggression. Yeah. Um, but if we just focus on that, then we miss the first half of that conversation, yeah. which is that that's a product of something. Well, it's a product of the violating experience that came before it. Yeah. And so you can see this narrative of, of what violence has done to people. It's their experience. Yeah. Being inspired. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So we're getting a bit of a picture there. Yes. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, are there any frameworks that you can point us to at this stage to help us make sense of that uh, that symbolic or structural institutional violence? Are there any theorists that we can we can follow up on. I think, I mean, I, again, you mentioned Borgia before. Um, I mean, he meant, he was kind of, he coined this term symbolic violence. Um, and it's a way that I suppose it's implicit or it's involved in these rules of games where, um, you know, violence is acted through communication and through cognition and through recognition and through feeling. So it's these very subtle kind of insidious um, terms. And because we're, part of this system of society and we want to belong we want to be part of the game we kind of we go along with it um i mean you mentioned some critiques of you know <laughs> well, that, that's where i was going to go next yeah. right is to say okay yeah it's this idea of symbolic violence is making some sense to us but there are some serious concerns about yes. it yes um, so in particular i think of sylvia walby's work so she's uh, as a feminist scholar, has some problems with one particular part of symbolic violence that we'll focus on, which is the idea that the people who are experiencing it are somehow complicit in their experience of violence. They somehow contribute to it. Um, Through their submission. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, trying to put some, some language to that or some context to it, so perhaps 
uh, in this instance in the Centrelink space, I, would, I suppose it would be saying that people come into into Centrelink and, and act violently or, or, or contribute the, the same behaviours or how would that, that work? How does that idea of contributing to your own oppression work in that space? Perhaps they're not prepared to change their own status quo so they continue to change their life so they have to still continue, continue to not get a job, continue to um, rely upon welfare um, so that they have to partic- continue participating in that institution. That would be probably mm. my take on that rather yeah. than actual kind of their physical response or their anger response. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, such a, a sort of slippery space. I know, it is so slippery, isn't it? Um, but, I mean, I mean, you gave the example. It, it's moving beyond the symbolic violence, but I think that the source of complicity, mm-hmm. um, we, sp- we spoke about in, in terms of like a domestic violence type of relationship where there can be physical violence, but there can also be emotional or financial abuse or, um, or even symbolic in terms of the language that is used in terms of that relationship. And the argument, using a Bourdieu kind of um, framework is the fact that the, the victim, quote unquote, of that um, space is complicit in that because they're not actually resisting or, or moving outside of that relationship. They're actually continuing, choosing to continue to be part of that relationship. Um, and so their um, complicity is actually um, their contribution and they're actually enabling that to happen. Mm. Is, is that perhaps a... Yep, that's correct. Okay. That's perfect. I mean, it's a really tricky idea to get your head around and I think it's trying to make that concrete as possible is, is useful. Um, I think it's worth then offering the, the critique a little bit more detail as yeah, well. So, so that makes sense uh, in terms of how you can contribute. But um, if, if we ascribe to, to victims their complicity into it, obviously that's a f- an additional layer of disempowerment, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so not only are you experience a violation, but, but actually you know, it's your fault. It's your fault. At some level. Yeah. Victim blaming. Yeah. yeah. Not not really not great. useful. Not, not the most helpful for. Not, not the most forward looking <laughs> idea, perhaps uh, even reinforcing this individualization, this notion that we can just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps yeah. and, and try harder. Yeah. But I actually also really like um, there's uh, Paolo Friere's kind of critique yeah. of this idea, which he's just he goes on to say that um, how can we frame it as them being complicit when the initial experience or even the definition but the experience a bit more tangible is created by the oppressor so yeah. he's, he's saying the oppressor is doing violence and then the person contributes to it well it's already an and then isn't it it's a it's a system which is constructed by an oppressor and we're saying that the the dominated are complicit that doesn't make any no, sense no it doesn't make any sense and and i think the whole it's particularly the thing about symbolic violence and in and the structural violence is that it's actually um it's 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 almost um imposing power by coercion it's not it's not like saying thou willst agree to my um, you know demands or anything like that. It's it's framed in a way that it's legitimate, and so you accept it as the status quo. So you don't see it as violent, mm. right? Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. Is that it's so embedded in terms of the system, is that we don't even have an awareness of the fact that these these rules that you have to live by, or these frameworks, or these labels that you experience are so legitimized in terms of this is what's good for the economy this is what's good for society this is what a healthy you know successful young person looks like you want to be that different person but you're not so the so 
implicit in that violent structure is that you put the blame on yourself in the first place. So the invisibility of that, I think, deconstructs the idea, the fact that you're complicit in that. It's because (laughs) we we go out of that. Powerful people go out of their way to remain in power, and it is you know it is a long-held understanding of the theory of power if we think of you know Foucault talked about this about it takes much more energy to control a group of people through force right it's much easier to embed it in the system so that they believe it for themselves and even you know there's a Marxian idea you know what I mean like there's so many people that have talked about this in terms of the good old bourgeoisie but and the predator you know there's a sense that um, when we believe things about ourselves we put our own energy into it so yes, that could be pliant, but you can't critique someone for that because that's the system that they live in. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the responsibilities that we have as, you know, as sociologists with people in privilege, people in education, people in power, is to highlight the invisible notions of privilege that we hold and how we even participate in these systems of violence. Right. Okay. So we've got to. I'll stop preaching. No, that, that's excellent. Thank you. So we're taking that step back that Jesus asked us to do and to say, well, hang on a second. How have we defined violence? Yeah. And then what does that leave out? You know, what are the other bits that were the dominant discourse is not allowing us to see? Yeah, uh, that are also violent and violating, but because of the way the language and the culture is structured, we don't acknowledge that. Yeah. And I actually really like this um, this quote from Howard Serkin, who, who, who did a little bit of work on youth violence in 2003. And so he, he says it this way. He says, poor people fight with their bodies. Rich people fight with their money. Mm. with lawsuits or hostile takeovers. Mm. And so the, what he's doing here is highlighting that we define violence in terms of the physical approach or methods that poor people typically use. Yeah. Right? And we say that is not okay. Yeah. But we don't look at the other bits, the hostile takeovers, the finance, the inequalities, <clears throat> the lawsuits, and say, well, that's actually quite violating as well. But that's okay. That's, that's socially acceptable. Yeah. And so all, you, all you're left with is that that dominant discourse about what's not okay. Yeah. And but again, it's saying if that's all that's left to you, if you don't have if you know, if you don't have money, if you don't have privilege, all you've got left is your is your body. Like, can you blame someone? No, that's right. Yeah. If you're coming up against a, a bureaucracy which is the rule of nobody uh-huh. you know, and you don't have the if anybody has the the cultural emotional capital to navigate that, then what are you left with? You're left with your body and that's yeah. what you fight with. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, I wanted to give another example, which I think continues this theme. Yeah. It's actually within the Semlink space as well. Right. Um, and it comes from uh, from my PhD research. It's a, a quote from a participant, uh, and he's talking about his engagement with Semlink. Yep. And he actually ends up describing uh, somebody else's who he's there with as well. Well, not with them, and he doesn't know them, but they're there at the same time. Yeah. So I'll read that out, and then let's, let's again sort of unpack a little bit. Sure. So this is the quote. He says, well, I'm polite, I am nice, and I am not really violent. I basically get all sorts of things handed to me on a silver platter. Yeah. Uh, say, walk into Centrelink, uh, to the government welfare system in Australia. Uh, I may have missed an appointment, and they have suspended my pay. And then some other bogan has missed an appointment, has been to Centrelink, and has been like, and at this point, the, the on person uh, gives a quite detailed and colourful word description of how the other person responds uh, to Centrelink. A few swear words inserted. Um, and then he contrasts that to himself. He says, I'll walk in there and be like, um, I don't know what's happened. 
have I missed an appointment? Can someone please tell me what's going on? Not only will I get seen first, I will get given my money, whereas they will get sat down for like an hour or two, only making them angrier. And then they do not get seen, and then they do not get helped. And that day, because of how arrogant and rude they are and disrespectful to the workers who are giving them money. That's the end of the quote. So good. So, I mean, all the dynamics that we talked about just before are there in terms of the cultural, emotional capital um, that's going on. And he's, he's using his capacity to manage that system uh, at a higher level than the other person who he's noticed. But there's another bit in here that I just find really fascinating. It's this bit here where he's, he describes the other person as some other bogan. Yeah. And what's fascinating about that is he's almost at some level acknowledging that he's a bogan too. Some other bogan, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's I'm a bogan, but yeah. there's some other bogan there yeah. too. Uh, and this this language of bogan obviously has a particularly Australian element to it. Perhaps it's something equivalent to like a, a redneck in the US, or is it um, is like a chav in yeah, the UK I think or something so. like I think that? So, I think. Yeah. so this this person who has uh, typically less social cultural capital or a low in that space, um, that in, in Australia doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have any financial capital no. but usually they're, they're they're seen as an outsider because of the way that they dress and they talk and, and that sort of thing so he self-identifies with that yeah uh, and it's, it looks like that dynamic of symbolic violence that we're talking about you know he's contributing to his own positioning as a disempowered person that's right um, but yet somehow has worked out how to navigate the system. It's a really weird it's dynamic. It's so weird. But, it, but also he's, got, he's self-reflective to say, I actually have the capacity to navigate this space or I'm going to play, this is how I play the game at least. Right? Yeah. So they're saying that, you know, we might actually be in the same position as, as this other bogan, but I'm going to take the polite route or pretend that I don't know or, or, or not act with quote-unquote violence, um, knowing that he, as he says, he sees, he's seen first, he gets what he wants, yeah. um, as opposed to um, this other peer that he sees. Yeah, so interesting. So, yeah, there's <laughs> all those bits to it. You know, he, he talks himself as not really violent, right? Yeah. So he's kind of saying that he can... Um, navigate the system but it is it's still part of that dominant discourse of what violence is so yeah. not not being violent is not screaming at somebody that's right because yeah in his first sentence he's like i'm not a violent person yeah yeah that's right yeah. and yet ironically you know later in, in the conversation uh, this is a young person and the reason he was part of this uh, study was because he's involved in the juvenile justice system right. and so he went on to describe some quite physically violent acts that he did at other times and so there's this contrast here between the way he engages one system and, and the way he'll behave in other contexts so for me that speaks again to the, the dominance of this way of thinking about what is violent and what is not you know, he's, he's identifies as being a not violent person because uh, not only does he not engage with Centrelink in that way, but the, the later ways he would talk about his violence were often very much in you know, terms of self-defence. Yeah, interesting. Or you know, this um, idea of uh, using violence as a problem-solving tool in appropriate contexts, which I think <laughs> speaks very much to that, that broader idea of, of when violence is acceptable in our society. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. acceptable 
in particular contexts, in particular ways, um, but not in others, in quite strange and ironic things. So yes. one of the examples I love is like sport. Yes, right? I was <laughs> really hoping you'd bring that up because I, I was going to do that if you did. <laughs> Keep going. Great. I'll give you a snippet and then you, you yeah. talk about it. Because I, I enjoy watching AFL football. Yes, set, you do. Is, you go to stupid, cold games, right. which I don't understand. Well, yes. That's right. We were sitting out in the hail the other week watching um, my team play. And that's okay. Um the hail anyway. But what I find really interesting is the level of physical attack that is allowed once somebody steps over that white line yeah. into the playing field that would never be allowed on the street. Yeah. Uh, and that, again, I think speaks to something about where where it's acceptable or not, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a sec, but you, you want to talk about sport as well? Oh, or yeah. I just, that? I mean, when you're talking about the fact that it's contradictory and there's ironic forms, it's the saying, yeah, as soon as you, we're not, we're not allowed to be physically violent in our society, but as soon as you step onto that field, um, you are allowed to. Um, but let's just think about who is allowed and who's not allowed in that space, okay? So we think about um, the people that participate in different sports. There's very much a gender story in that, um, in the fact that it's only really, <laughs> I mean, the debate still continues, but in terms of female participation in sport, you know, AFL, for example, um, women weren't even really allowed on the game and not necessarily considered to be as good as or in the same, you know, think about how much they're paid let's think about how much um you know, you know women can participate but also there's a there's a racial story as well in terms mm. of um you know who who has traditionally been allowed to participate in those forms of violence um and um like in terms you know there's sort of all these forms of kind of exclusion that are embedded in that story which we're not necessarily talking about today but i think it's interesting that it's okay we'll still let the elite men um, go and hit each other because you know what that's what it means to be a man and the really interesting thing is that it's then excluded from all other forms of life right yes. and so there's this understanding that we've you know over time increasingly become a civilized society okay mm -hmm. so that um, the forms of violence that were experienced in everyday life i.e war and combat between tribal kind of entities have been excluded to so that the only form which is acceptable is in the sporting field um, but again that has a really interesting association with what we understand to be a man and the fact that violence is perhaps needed mm. to have some outlet or some sort of cuff ache um, type of experience um, but also then you know on the flip side who's not allowed in that space i.e women i.e people of different you know racial cultural heritage um, Exactly. I'll, I'll stop yeah. there but you know there's such there's so much to be kind of that are deeply embedded in, the, in those notions yeah that, that's really interesting because we say that that violence is uh, contained to the, the sporting field but it, what you're pointing out is that it's not it's not contained to the sporting field because it links into discourses of, of what it means to be a man or yeah. what it means to be you know any range of you know violent kind of identities yeah. in our society yeah. and so we say it's okay there but it does actually have a broader cultural impact absolutely it's where i find um some of the work of someone like johan galtung really interesting because he talks about violence uh, in, in a few different levels so he, he names three different levels one is kind of the personal level which is your more physical violence yep. uh, but it can also be kind of that verbal emotional stuff as well he talks about a structural violence uh, which is violent built into the structures and inequalities in society, mm -hmm. so the violating impact of 
financial inequality, yeah. of poverty, yeah. of those sort of things. But then he also talks about the next level up being cultural violence. So not whole cultures that are violent, but aspects of cultures that reinforce and legitimise violence. Yeah. So this is what I think I would see in, yeah. in the sporting field, yeah, 100%. is that, that that violence on the field reinforces its space in our culture, in other places. There's a narrative there that says, like you said, this is what it means to be a man. But I think there's another one about this is how we solve problems. Yeah. You know, and this is ultimately okay. Uh, and I, here, for me, it links to another guy's work. His name's Walter Wink. And he talks about the myth of redemptive violence, mm. that we, we redeem ourselves, we can solve problems, we change the situation by using violence. And this we see very clearly in, in, um, in media, in movies, in games. Yeah. You see, ultimately, the story looks something like a hero who comes along and usually initially gets defeated. Like, think of a Marvel movie, right? This yeah. is exactly what happens every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comes along, gets defeated, goes home, recuperates, uh, sometimes loses something important to him, usually yeah. often a relationship, yeah. um, often a, a subordinate female character, yeah. right? Loses that character. Yeah, yeah. Builds a better Iron Man suit or whatever. There's, there needs to be some like montage, like yeah. <laughs> that's beautifully highlighted with a song. Yeah, I'm probably not the person to put that together, but somebody <laughs> needs to. And then comes back and physically beats the other person, yeah. and then wins the love of the whoever. Yes, you know? and it's usually again that subordinate person. So we see that yeah. in the footy field because yeah. we see the team rise up and overcome the odds and defeat that team higher on the ladder or, or whatever. Um, we see it in, in news media, you know, in, in st- you know, um, public stories that yeah. say an amazing person has overcome the adversity yeah. and we see it in all these narratives. So yeah. it's the cultural, these cultural aspects that say this is okay. Yeah. And, and this is linking it back to our conversation about young people. Now, young people are born into, <laughs> into this culture. Young people are born into this system. They don't have a choice. Uh, you could choose not to watch movies, but it, this level of saturation of this story... So profound, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. this is how we solve problems. This yeah. is what it means to be capable and independent and in an individual. You know, it's more than just um, you know, a gendered story. It's, a, it's an everybody story. Yeah. 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 And, but the thing I think is interesting, it's so contradictory to say, okay, violence can be redemptive, but only for certain people. You know, that's the thing. You know, and you know, I, think about, <laughs> I think about certain movies like... You know, I, I want to think of the Taken movies like Liam Neeson, right? Who gets something taken away from him and he basically destroys an entire city, right? <laughs> He's redemptive yeah. in that process, but there's no consequences for him. No, that's right. In terms of the violence of the collateral damage that he actually ensues, mm. um, and it's interesting if he was another person, you know, put put <laughs> put in a black person, right? Mm. Put in a young person in that space. Mm. What kind of consequences do they experience? So there's this myth of when you're saying redemptive violence, but only yeah. for certain people. So when you say these stories are redemptive, but we still blame. So we, so it's understandable that people buy into these young people buy into this. Say, well, this is how I can solve my problems, but they are not going to be treated the same as someone who is in, in a privileged position is treated. So if they went to go and do the same things that Liam Neeson was going to do, they'd be locked up for life. You know what I mean? So exactly right. Uh, and and I think that's that's a really. Um, sad part of it is that we we completely we disempower especially marginalized young people from so many different angles mm-hmm. um, institutionally symbolically all this stuff so they believe certain stories about them but then they believe the stories of how they can get out of that mm-hmm. so the stories that we tell them are a the redemptive power of violence or b 
just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, you know, and, you know, rise above or, I don't know, three, become a celebrity. You know, you know, these are our, you know, these are our, our roots by which we're basically said you can escape yeah. this horrible life that you live. But we penalise them. We penalise them in every single circumstance yeah. um, when they try to resist it. So there we go. So we can see that narrative again of the, the violence that you're born into, the violence of the system teaches you something, it violates you in a certain way, which you then try and replicate uh, later in your own story, in your own narrative. It doesn't work, yeah. but that's the, the pattern that we can see, yeah. that we see happening. Yeah. So then if we return back around to, because we've been talking for a while and um, <laughs> probably should talk all day about it. Uh, Although we could. Yeah, definitely. Um, we come back to this idea of the violence done by young people. Yeah. And, you know, I want to sort of pick on, I think, at the front of my mind at the moment is um, some of the, the extreme violence that we see, particularly through gun violence yeah. um, or, or bullying or maybe even you know, quote-unquote gang violence. Yeah. Right? And often the label or the quick solution offered in these spaces is oh, it's, it's mental health yeah. issues or it's um, perhaps these are young people who spend too long playing Fortnite, yeah. you know, gaming. And yeah. well, there's, there's evidence to show that, you know, that gaming and violent movies don't make you violent. It desensitizes you to the violence in those yes. in those meetings, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll translate um, to, to acting. Yeah, like. it's not a causal relationship. Yeah, that's right. But that, that's to miss the point, I think. Yeah. You know, focusing on those issues is, is still focusing on that flashy violence and it yep. doesn't ask the broader question of the cultural narratives, the cultural justification of which movies and video games are part of that. That's right. So they're not going to directly cause it, but, yeah. but they, they continue and they perpetuate this myth of yeah. how we interact, how we yeah. solve problems, how we use violence. Yeah. I think one of the one of the most important things we can do at looking, I suppose, when you're not deeply embedded in those processes, is go look. Can we see some broader themes that are going on, right? So we look at so the young people that are often involved in these stories have some similar characteristics of young people who perhaps feel marginalised, they perhaps feel disempowered, um, and they feel like they don't have a sense of control or agency in their own lives, um, and. And again, it's not—it's not justification, or, or um, you know, you're not—you're not saying that their response is okay, or you're not condoning it by any stance. But isn't it understandable that, say, a young man who is um, doesn't fit in terms of these kind of violent educational systems where you um, standardise tests and you say you have to behave in a certain way and you have to be in this classroom from nine to five and you have to, you know, conform to these standards, blah 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 blah. Um, perhaps your home life is in a space where there isn't a sense of um, empathetic support um, that you've dislocated that it's not a safe space for you um, what messages of power do you, do you have at your disposal like what do they have in their hands they have access to their body and you as we were saying before and unfortunately in some circumstances they have access to, to weaponry right mm. so there's a, there's you can you can track that logic to say I I feel so disempowered in my life I don't have any control I don't have any option um, why not make my stand this way mm. Mm. Wow that's powerful okay <laughs> you can critique me all you want no no I think that's great and one of the interesting things I want to pick up on though is that you said okay maybe this doesn't excuse it yeah uh, and I think you're right 
but there is a question there for me about well, what do we do now? Yeah. So you know, what do how do we respond to this? If this is the way that we want to think about the problem, we want to move away from individualizing discourses that say young people and youth are violent and bad. What what do we do instead? Yeah. And so I think there's probably a couple of levels right. we can think about that. One is solve our problems, Ben. Hey, I'm not offering solutions. <laughs> uh, one is. Um, as an individual level, you know, yeah, I think there is something we can do individually, but of course we want to move beyond that. So maybe at a professional level, so you and I talk to and train youth workers and counsellors and teachers, so what can they do? Yeah. And then almost the third level is that collective stuff, you know, how do we collectively respond? So I've got a couple of thoughts, but I'll throw to you first if you have any thoughts. No, I'll let you begin and then okay. I can jump in. That's fine. Yeah. Um, so I think at an individual level, that there is a need simply to just be more conscious and critical of the messages that we encounter. Uh, so th- again, I don't like the individualizing kind of response because yeah. it kind of says work harder yeah. uh, and that's <laughs> a great solution. <laughs> but I think there is an opportunity to educate and, and think about what the message you're getting is, who the people are that are sending you that message and what their implicit or explicit um, purpose of communicating that with you and a couple of times recently this resource has come up so i'm just going to name it again yeah uh so noam chomsky's uh, manufacturing consent is a great book that i've only actually read myself relatively recently in which he lays out uh, some of the again implicit and explicit motivations for people working in the mainstream media industry yeah. and why the messages that they're sending. So, you know, the really simple example here uh, with youth violence is that it's an attractive mm. idea. It yeah. sells. Yeah. And so that's why we'll talk about it and that will get more media coverage than young people doing nice things. Yeah, that's right. It's a sexier story. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of at the individual level. Um, at the the professional level, uh, for, for us here, I'm constantly and I know you are as well talking to <laughs> our students about the obligation that they have as youth workers but as professionals to to challenge some of these notions yeah. so they have had that education so it's yeah. their job now to go out into the field and into their personal lives as well I suppose and and when these representations of young people or violence come up to go well hang on a second let's think about that a little bit more yeah um, let's challenge the notion that young people are inherently risky and problematic and violent and yeah actually look at it through a different lens yeah and I think on that um, and this speaks also to that kind of individual level and also at a professional level but you know if you're in a position of privilege I think it's really important for the first step to recognize that and yeah. to kind of unpack okay what are what are aspects of power that I actually hold within my own life that I'm unaware of you know um, am I born in <laughs> am I white or am I you know am I male or am I female or you know do I have a particular sexual identity all these type of aspects actually afford us um, avenues that people who perhaps are experiences of marginalisation don't experience or they experience challenges accordingly. Yeah. Like, And I think one of the biggest things is for us to wake up to our own sense of invisible privilege, to know that when we participate or perpetuate in that system, you're saying? When, so as professionals, then when we can challenge that is when we are actually reflectively aware of our own privilege um, or perhaps our own, you know, maybe when we can name those stories when we've experienced violence ourselves, we can kind of, um, you know, we can narrate that uh, and we can empathise with that Um, because there's that sense of transparency and vulnerability that we need to access within ourselves. Mm, Yeah, that's great. 
Awesome. All right. And then the last yeah. level I think we just want to speak to really quickly is that collective action level. And I think for me, when I think about this, I think about the young people who are already involved in sort of political movements, primarily that are countering some of this discourse. Uh, and I, I think what we can do is just support them, mm. you know, actually go, this, this movement is important because often the young people in that space their voice is discounted, they're denigrated often in the media, um, and they're not given the, the support they would they would really deserve yeah. uh, as, as equal participants yeah, in, right. in our democratic society. I don't think that means you have to agree with them no. at all times. You don't have to say everything on your five, ten bot points, 100%, <laughs> but just be supportive of them actually voicing. Yeah, that's right. And also not to take the step of going, I'm going to speak for you, yes. um, because that's not true advocacy. It's actually, as you're saying, support so that they can actually speak. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Running out of time quickly. So to wrap up, I think it's worth, well, I've asked all the other people on the podcast to recommend a few resources, and we've named lots. So we probably don't need to name any new ones, but I might just reiterate a couple. Yeah, great idea. Uh, and then if you want to throw any in as well, absolutely welcome to. Um, so the first one I think is worth starting with to think about youth violence, because it's really accessible in terms of language, is Howard Circum's Reflections on Youth Violence from Youth Studies Australia Journal. So I'm going to provide links, of course, as I always do to these. Uh, so that's a good starting point. If you want to go a little bit deeper, I recommend uh, Johan Galtung's article from 1969 called Violence, Peace and Peace Research. And so that lays out some of those different layers of violence that we're talking about. Uh, The last one, I actually want to recommend, there's some, again, I provide the links, some YouTube links to a couple of videos with some young people who were involved in the uh, gun control movement in the US. uh, And they went on uh, Bill Mayer's Real Time yeah, I did an interview with him there and they're just very articulate yeah. um, but they also engage with him in an interesting way which I think once you have this kind of critical awareness of the discourses around young people becomes fascinating because they act out and challenge some of the notions that young people are risky and violent right. and even with Bill who's you know pretty much a massive lefty uh, he's still <laughs> participating in those yeah. those hierarchies those stories, and yeah. so that's quite interesting that yeah. would be three that I'd recommend yeah great sweet alright um, final thoughts if people wanted to follow up on any of these conversations follow up some of your work Kirsten where could they find you on the internet on the internet if you google me I've got a few articles that I've been, uh, that I've been um, moving through but um Hopefully that Ben and I are going to be, we'll do some stuff. I think we should do some stuff, Ben. I think, absolutely. Let's do more stuff. (laughs) We always need to do more. We should definitely write some of this down though. I think so. We'll we'll provide some links to that. Yeah. Very good. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Um, Thank you for the conversation. This has been great. It's really enjoyed it. Great. Awesome. Have fun, guys. Links to the resources discussed in the podcast are provided in the show notes. If you like the podcast, share it around. My name is Ben Lohmeyer. Thank you for listening to Exploring Violence and Society.